Coming to you from Happy Cat Studio in Indianapolis, Indiana, it's Rick's Rambles for the week of October 4th, 2021. Fun Facts. Well, it's October, the month of Halloween, the month when we eat pumpkin pie and carve jack-o'-lanterns, and for some of us, watch those great, old, campy, scary movies on the TV, something that I love to do. So we're going to kick off October with 10 fun facts about one of my favorite movie characters, Godzilla. Are you ready? Here we go. His original name, Gojira, was rumored to be the nickname of a tough guy at Toho Studios. According to Ashiro Honda, who directed the first Godzilla film, there was this big, and I mean huge, fellow working in Toho's publicity department. And other employees would say, that guy is as big as a gorilla. And then somebody would say, no, he's as big as a Kujira, which is the Japanese word for whale. Over time, those two words got kind of mished together, and Gojira, the original name of Godzilla, came out. Number two, Godzilla's classic roar is a surprising mix of sounds. In the original 1954 movie, Godzilla's iconic roar was produced by rubbing a pine tar-coated leather glove over a double bass string. And, of course, his roar has mutated over the years, just as he has. Number three, Godzilla was originally going to be a giant mutated octopus. <laughs> it's part of movie lore by now. The original idea for Godzilla is that he would look something like a giant octopus. Ultimately, producer Tomiyaki Tanaka smartly decided to go with the more dinosaur-like design. Number four, I had no idea about this. Godzilla went head-to-head -head with none other than Charles Barkley. In 1992, Godzilla and NBA star Charles Barkley faced off in a Nike ad. The commercial, which was filmed over the course of eight days, was also adapted into a comic book, and those comic books actually are quite valuable these days. Number five, did you know that Godzilla is an advertising icon? Well, he sure is. Godzilla hawked Dr. Pepper in 1985, Nike was not the first or even the second brand that Godzilla shilled for. In 1985, he appeared in commercials for Dr. Pepper, and that wasn't even their first collaboration. The soft drink was featured in the 1984 film The Return of Godzilla, and then again in Godzilla 1985. Number six, Japanese baseball star Hideki Matsui was nicknamed Godzilla early in his career because of his monstrous hitting prowess. Number seven, there's a town named Zilla, Washington, and there is a church of God in Zilla, Washington, and they've called themselves the Church of God, Zilla, and it was founded decades before the radioactive monster's conception, but that didn't stop the congregation from tipping its hat to this odd coincidence. Just behind the church, a steel wireframe dinosaur statue can be seen clutching a cross and a sign saying the Church of God Zilla. I'm not really sure the denomination likes being affiliated with the big lizard, but so far they've been pretty cool, Reverend Gary Connor said. You know what? I think I want to drive out to Zilla, Washington just so I can visit that church and get a picture of that. Number eight, I should have known this, but I sure did not. George Takai got his show business start by dubbing Japanese monster movies. Listen for George Takai's rich baritone in the English-language version of Godzilla's second film, Godzilla Raids Again, which was first released in 1955. 
Previously, the Star Trek legend had broken into the film industry by doing similar work on Rodan. Remember him, the flying giant pterodactyl? Another Toho monster movie. Number nine, during an action sequence in 1964's Godzilla vs. Mothra, the Godzilla suit accidentally caught on fire. Amazingly, this footage actually made it to the final cut, and you can find that clip on YouTube. And number 10, an original Godzilla suit was stolen and then lost and then randomly washed up on shore. In 1992, one of the monster's costume, estimated worth $390,000, was stolen from a garage only to be found washed up on the shores of Lake Okantampa near Tokyo, where it inadvertently terrorized local residents. There you have it, 10 fun facts about Godzilla. If you'd like to support the Rick's Rambles podcast, there are three ways you can do that. First of all, you can simply share it on your social media. Let folks know what you're listening to. If your podcast app allows reviews, go give the podcast a quick review. That would be very much appreciated. And lastly, if you'd like to support the financial aspect of the podcast, you can simply buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Rick Garrett. As always, I really, really appreciate you listening. And it's time for our good news story of the week. And if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know how I end every podcast and how I am an advocate of being kind as often as we can. Well, today's story comes from the University of British Columbia, and it's about the effects of kindness on health and well-being. Here we go. A small act of kindness can go a long way, say researchers, towards bolstering student health and wellness. Dr. John Tyler Benfit and Dr. Sally Stewart at the University of British Columbia recently published a study that explores how the inclusion of a kindness assignment in undergraduate courses impacted student perceptions of themselves, their peers, their campus, and the world around them. While there have been several studies that have assessed the effects of kindness on our own well-being, there's been, sadly, limited research into how university-age students understand and enact kindness, says Dr. Benfit. Thousands of university students returned to class across Canada in September, and Dr. Benfit notes that while living in times of COVID-19, every act of kindness goes an especially long way. We know being kind yields a number of our own well-being benefits, such as stress reduction, happiness, peer acceptance, and we know that our own mental health impacts our own learning, says Dr. Benfit. The post-secondary environment is often the last training ground to prepare students for life, so we want to understand how we can prepare students for optimal mental health as adults. For the study, Volunteer students provided self-reports to determine the extent they see themselves as kind in online and face-to-face -face interactions and how connected they felt to their peers both on and off campus. The students were then asked to plan and complete five acts of kindness for one week. The participants completed 353 kind acts with the main themes of helping others, giving, demonstrating appreciation, and communicating. Students that completed at least three of the fine planned acts of kindness self-reported significantly higher scores of in-person kindness and peer connectedness. 
This research can help students realize that there is evidence between how and why people are kind and that kindness does impact our own health and well-being, says Dr. Student. It has also been an incredible impact for teaching in higher education as it provides insight into where students are at with their practice and understanding of kindness in order to build the groundwork for inclusion of this topic within emotional practices and course content areas. Well, there are on-campus well-being resources available to students at most post-secondary schools. This research demonstrates that by including well-being initiatives into coursework, it's easier for more students to engage in these activities and receive benefits without added effort. The study also demonstrated that a curriculum-based kindness intervention would be well-received by students. We found that students loved the assignment, says Dr. Stewart. For some, it helped them realize that kindness is a skill that we can learn to do better and that there are numerous ways to be kind. For others, it helped them realize that they were already practicing kindness. It reinforced their desire and their intention of doing more kind acts. For years, Dr. Benfit's research has focused on elevating the discussion of kindness, and he has previously completed studies on how students and children and adolescents perceive and enact kindness. With this research, we now see alignment in how university students and school-age participants define kindness. To them, it means actions that can improve the life of others and also improve the lives of our own. Often, it's simple things, such as simply being polite and helping others. There you have it, our good news story for today. I've been following an interesting thread on Twitter about the most popular toys of the 1970s, and I have really found it fascinating, and it brought back a lot of memories for me. And so today we're going to do a nostalgia segment and look at some of the most popular toys of the 1970s. Are you ready? Here we go. First up is the Nerf Ball. Remember the Nerf Ball? Parker Brothers debuted the first Nerf ball in late 1969, a four-inch polyurethane foam ball marketed as the world's first indoor ball. Well, it was an instant hit, and it didn't take long for the company to work on a whole range of Nerf products, including the Nerf football, which debuted in 1972. Soft and squishy, these balls caused little damage when tossed around indoors, making them popular toys with generations of children's and parents. Number two, I had completely forgotten about these weebles. Who remembers the weebles? Weebles wobble, but we don't fall down was the tagline for one of the 1970s most popular plastic toys, of course, the weebles. Released by Romper Room in 1969, these egg-shaped figurines with an impressive ability to balance were originally a brightly colored nuclear family. There was Dad Weeble, Mom Weeble, Brother, Sister, and Baby Weeble, and they even had a family dog. Do you know the dog's name? Well, it was simply Weeble. And then they introduced playsets like the Weeble House, the Weeble Circus, and the Weeble Haunted House, and the Weebles were a bona fide empire by the end of the 1970s. 
Skateboards were hugely popular in the 1970s. I had a skateboard one time, and I kept it for about two days, and that was enough for me because my balance has never been that great. The history of the skateboard can be traced back to the early 1950s, but there was a huge resurgence in the 1970s. How many of y'all had a skateboard? And now, you know, they say everything that goes around comes around. Well, skateboards are wildly popular again. Next up, who remembers this? The Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle. I loved that thing. It had that plastic thing you stuck down inside of it, and you ripped it out, and it would cause the wheels to spin. I love the Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle. That grossed, in one year alone, $350 million. Up next, the Etch-A-Sketch. Who remembers the Etch-A-Sketch? Well, in 1960, the Ohio Art Company paid French electrician Andre Casangadas, I know I butchered that name, $25,000 for the rights to his new invention, the Etch-A-Sketch. It was released in the U.S. markets just in time for Christmas, and a legend was born. In a special nod to my good friend Richard Propes, how about the Pet Rock? Who remembers the Pet Rock? In 1975, Gary Dahl introduces Pet Rock in San Francisco, California. In the months that followed, millions of people bought into the fad, spending a whopping $3.95 on a smooth stone and its clever packaging. In the packaging that was it and it was the packaging that really sold the pet rocks. Every new pet came in a cardboard box that featured breathing holes and an instructional care and feeding pamphlet. Uh, and the toy even expired songs like I'm in Love with My Pet Rock by Alan Bolt and appeared on the Tonight Show. By the way, my good friend Richard Probst still has his original pet rock. Well, I had no idea that this was introduced so early. In 1972, Atari introduced Pong. Who remembers Pong? It's kind of tennis-esque, in which a player uses a simple controller to move an in-game paddle following a small electronic ball back and forth with another player or with the computer. Points were awarded when a volley isn't returned. It was hugely successful. 1976 Kenner Company released Stretch Armstrong. Who remembers Stretch Armstrong? Oh, my goodness. I love those things. They never seemed to last very long because we all wanted to cut them open and see what was inside them. Well, this next one was released in 1968 but didn't really become popular until about 1971. Who remembers the Light Bright? It, it was simple design, a backlit grid that can be covered by a black sheet of paper, creating a canvas for young artists to poke their colored peg creations into. The result was a glowing original or pre-patterned design that could be dismantled and reassembled in as many ways as your heart desired. Well, there you go, a look back at some of the most popular toys of the 1970s. And it's time to look at our special days for the week. This week, the week of October 4th, 2021. Here we go. Monday, today, October 4th, is the Blessing of the Animals. It's National Cinnamon Roll Day. It's National Taco Day. And 10-4, it is National CB Radio Day. Tuesday the 5th is National Do Something Nice Day. And it's National Storytelling Day. Wednesday, October 6th. Garlic Lovers Day, and it's National Noodle Day. Thursday the 7th is National Frappe Day. 
Friday, October the 8th, is National Pierogi Day, and it is World Octopus Day, Saturday, October 9th. National Chess Day. Boy, it's been a long time since I played chess. And it's National Pizza and Beer Day. And we'll wrap the week up on Sunday, October the 10th, with National Angel Food Cake Day. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Rick's Rambles podcast. I'm so glad you listened. Please don't forget to share it on your social media. And until next week, be kind to as many people as you can, as often as you can. We'll start right now, and we'll make the world a better place. (laughs) 